Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and over a series of interviews, we're going to learn about how early-stage B2C startups raise money and look into the inner workings of venture capital. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And for all episodes, you can go to theconsumervc.com. Our guest today is David Wu partner at Maveron. Maveron is a premier consumer-focused fund that invests in C and Series A companies that empower consumers to live on their terms. David joined Maveron to help identify new investments in emerging direct consumer brands, especially those in the hardware and tech categories. Some of David's investments include Booster, Eargo, Illumix, Modern Fertility, and August. I'm so excited to share my conversation with David, where we chat about all things consumer. So without further ado, here he is. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So before we start talking about startups and venture capital, you built a houseboat and rafted down the Mississippi River and also was a professional bass player in a band. Can you tell us about that first? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about both. You know, I've, I've had the great experience of um, growing up in the Bay Area, always had a little bit of the left-right brain disease. And so I always lived in the present a little bit. After graduation, five of us from five different colleges actually decided to raft down the Mystic River. So we actually flew out to Minneapolis and, and several miles north of, in, towards Canada and the Boundary Waters. We built our own houseboat and went all the way down the river. I think it's something like 24, 2500 miles at three miles an hour. And this was kind of a long time ago in the 90s, kind of pre-internet pre-cell phones. And so it was quite an adventure. And, and the, the, the funny part is that in a lot of ways now, looking back at that adventure, it reminds me a lot about startups. And you kind of have this mode where failure is just not an option. You know, we kind of kicked off the idea several years back in college of one of my friends trying to make it down, but didn't succeed. And we always said, you know, if we did it, we, we would make it all the way down. And so we knew going in that failure was not an option. And, and we actually didn't know enough about what we we're doing to realize that it's actually a lot harder to, to build a houseboat and float down the Mississippi River. And so I think a lot of this not realizing how impossible being naive to the challenges is a huge advantage in, in a lot of ways that in an early stage startup, looking back, if you a lot of people say if you knew how difficult that really was or the fact that you couldn't do X, Y, or Z, you may never even try. And I think the last thing was in a lot of ways, it was kind of this take everything one day at a time and living in the present. It took a ton of heart and grit. And big part of it was actually enjoying the journey itself. And, and, and it's less about the destination, but more about the journey. And I think that in so many ways, it has parallels with um, the, the life of an entrepreneur. Probably for another story, but I've always been, I think you're you're a musician as well and, and a big music fan, but I always love music. Um, now, I spend more time on the nonprofit side, but definitely spent a few years as a professional musician touring around the country in a, in a rock band. I, I was a, I was an, and am a bass player. And so I always love playing as part of a group. And probably the most ironic thing is I always joke, but I think I trace back definitely all what I've learned about my patience um, being in the back of a bus driving around the country, you know, tens of thousands of, of miles a month, but also a lot of my business sense, you know, being part of a professional band you know, I love performing and I love writing music, but a lot of the time was driving around the country. And frankly, I was the one with the most business sense. So I spent a lot of time also on the back of the bus 
figuring out how we're going to raise money and balancing small numbers in QuickBooks. That's awesome. I love your Mississippi houseboat story and the parallels to founders starting companies. Uh, I think that's incredibly well said. And also your experience being in a band and touring around the country, but still being business minded. I think that's, that's amazing. Uh, as you know, I also played in a few bands in college and love playing shows. What attracted you to work in high growth startups? You know, it, it, it kind of happened, um, just by chance, you know, I, I came out of college. I was I always wanted to be a product guy. I got a lot of advice from kind of OG Silicon Valley people to go be an engineer first because I had the skills of being a software developer. And that, frankly, as a being an engineer for a few years, people would listen to me on the product side more. So I started off as an engineer, and then I kind of eventually kind of cut my teeth and, and moved to the product side. And you know, when I joined this company, it was rich, uh, the first startup I was in was called Cartoplesoft and, and kind of a funny name. And, and we, you know, launched our first internet product and renamed it Homestead and it would, it turned into a, a 13 year ride. Um, and so I, it, it happened not as intentionally as you would think, but just a bunch of smart people building great products on the internet. And it became one of the most popular ways that people built websites back then. What led you to move from being an operator to investor? You know, um, I spent pretty much most of my life as, as an operator, you know, building companies. And I hit a stage after we sold Homestead in 2007. I was, I never worked at a big company, but I stayed into it for about three years, um, helping manage a lot of their products going from shrink wrap software to, to the internet. And I got to a point that I kind of wanted to, you know, seek out new challenges. I've always been like that, whether it's building a raft or being a musician or being an entrepreneur and, and, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley, I was always surrounded by entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. And, and in a lot of ways, I, I think that it was a, a natural progression. And I wanted something that was really challenging and, and quite different um, and yet related to the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And, and as I started angel investing into it, I really fell in love with this idea that you could be um, involved in lots of different companies. Um, and in fact, my North Star now as a venture capitalist is this kind of notion that I want to be the VC that I always wish I had. And, and through the 13-year journey at, uh, of Homestead, I worked with a lot of great VCs, and all of them had different aspects of um, uh, and traits that I really admire and, and things that you know were helpful and things where they were less helpful. But in a lot of ways, my North Star is to kind of show that you can be wildly successful at venture and be the VC that, you know, as an entrepreneur, most of my life I wish I could have. So in terms of you wanting to be the venture capital partner that you wish you always had, what actually makes a good venture capital partner? And I know a lot of VCs say that they're founder friendly. How should founders do their own due diligence on VCs? And to you, what does founder friendly actually mean? You know, it, it can mean a lot of different things for different people, but I will tell you that, you know, most VCs are great when times are great. And it's very easy to... Um, be a supportive VC when times are great. It's really when times are tough that you need to have the right partners around the table. I think one of the mistakes that a lot of entrepreneurs, especially first-time entrepreneurs the first time around, get is to think of you know, your VC relationship as very, very transactional. And we, we tend to think of it much more like a relationship and somebody who's going to be there. You know, simplistically, a lot of people say that you know, venture capitalists are kind of three things bundled together, money, control, and advice. And I'd add to that kind of a true partnership. You know, in a lot of ways, money is the easiest because it's pretty commoditized. And, you know, money 
is is kind of the the lowest common denominator and somewhere anywhere. You know, there's some pricing, there's some dilution in the in the equation, but at the end of the day, you know, money's money. I would add into that, you know, VCs one of their roles is to both provide funding now and also be, you know, a, an important element of how are you going to raise money later on? How can they help? How can they help lead that process? How can they bring in their network into that process? How can their past results increase your chances of getting the right money you're going to need later on? I think on the control side, it's kind of interesting because, you know, a lot of early entrepreneurs don't think that much about control except for the legalese and the document. But control means a lot of different things. Um, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize that over time, as you bring in more constituents and more money, there's a lot of disaligning forces. There's people pulling in different directions. There's people solving for different parts of the exit. And the other thing I didn't know early on in my career is that almost every transaction, whether it's a fundraise or an exit, usually gets financially re-engineered on the back end, which means that no matter what the waterfall of where the money is going to get distributed as you go public, as you sell the company, is figured out, it can get re-engineered on the back end. And I actually had no idea that's the case. And so in a lot of ways, when you think about these controls, as well as, you know, you're picking a partner that has the ability to, to fire the, the management team, you want to pick a partner that you believe will always strive for alignment rather than disalignment. And think fairly about all the constituents. And then the, the last one is advice. And I'd say right now, there's more access to advice than ever before. I think the world's getting flatter. But remember, I, I mentioned that I always wanted to be the VC I wish I had. You know, what we try to model is we try to be very active partners and truth tellers. You know, there are some VCs on one end of the spectrum that are great cheerleaders and you know, don't really even contribute that much to helping the business. But you know, at least aren't a, they aren't a factory driver and they're always just kind of cheering for the team. And you're not always the best person to bounce ideas off of, but, you know, are always supportive. And then the other spectrum is there's there's some VCs that are very, very active, but tend to be very backseat drivers, which is they want to run the company as if they were running it. And some entrepreneurs want that, but I'd say that the best entrepreneurs want to pick a true partner that can be a truth teller and talk about where the company is actually at right now and provide that advice and guidance, but also not grab the wheel. And so in a lot of ways, we try to model that. That makes a lot of sense considering that once a VC has invested in a company, that relationship uh, in terms of working together, that business relationship might last seven to 10 years. You know, relate, related to that, one of the things that I always advise entrepreneurs, and, and I see more entrepreneurs doing it now than in the past, but in a lot of ways, picking a VC is like picking a C-level exec but a C-level exec that you can't fire ever. So it's going to be with you for the entire journey. And that in a funny ways could actually fire you. And so in the same way that you hire C-level executive, you want to do tons and tons of references. And in a perfect world, you do back channel references of people that trust you enough. They'll tell you their, the truth. You want to do references on what are the best companies this VCs work with? What are the worst companies these VCs have worked with? You know, what are companies that shut down or ran out of money? And how did the VC act? I think the best entrepreneurs do the work. And it's really about doing the work. And and sometimes you'll get rushed to take a term sheet faster or make a decision faster. You know, the best entrepreneurs are running the process at their own speed and doing the work the same way that you're not going to get rushed to hire a new CMO. You're going to make sure that you've found the right partner. At the end of the day, you know, a few dollars or, or a few small terms in the, on the term sheet are going to matter far less than picking the right partner. Right. The founder should do as much due diligence on the VC firm as a VC does on the 
on the actual startup. Now, I know Maveron is consumer-only VC. And so why, why are you particularly interested in early-stage consumer? And what, does, and what makes B2C businesses so difficult to evaluate and invest in? Maveron just finished, our, I think, our 21st anniversary. And it goes all the way to the, the founding roots. Um, unlike a lot of VCs that are sort of generations of Silicon Valley VCs, Maveron was founded by two coffee guys in Seattle. Dan Levitan and Howard Schultz after they took Starbucks public. And they sort of had this insight that they were going to be more consumer businesses, consumer brands and consumer technology businesses than ever before because of technology. And even more importantly, they're going to reach higher heights, which created a lot of opportunity for venture. Um, and that sort of set the, the focus. I'd say you you mentioned that investing in direct consumer can be quite different than BB, and I, I definitely think it's a different skill set, you know, especially in different stages. And I think that you know some venture firms try to do a little bit of everything. In reality, there's only a small handful of VCs, probably you can count on one hand or less, that are good at at, at every stage and every sector. And and in general, you're, what you're going to find is the more specialized the VC is and, and finding real alpha, alpha being good at something is where you're going to drive VC results. And, and what we're good at, we're, we're good at identifying early companies on their journey from, you know, we say obscurity to ubiquity. And, and a lot of that is about finding the right teams that are going to build great enduring brands and understand how to use technology to grow that company much faster than, you know, like a PE business or a lifestyle business. And, and so, I, I think that both from specializing in stage and specializing in sector, and like you mentioned, consumer businesses are a little bit different than B2B businesses. It tends to be less metrics driven and more about, you know, what does this company stand for? What's the product market fit? And how big is this market? And can the team get, get hire the best people in, in the world to build this amazing brand? And so I love that you also mentioned that it's less me- metric driven and I, and especially in the early stage when there might not really be much much data at all. And so what are what are some of the traits that you like to see in a founder um, and, and elements in a pitch deck? You know, I mentioned earlier that we definitely start with the people. And, you know, one of our, our, in fact, our first of our core values, and we've done a lot of work on our core values and writing them out is is phrase unapologetically non-normal. And we apply that to the founders we like to back and we apply that to ourselves in the in the partners and the investment team and in every employee at Maveron. And we think greatness comes from people that are unapologetically non-normal. And in fact, looking back at our 21-year career, our best entrepreneurs were not balanced. You know, we 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 have this this entrepreneur scorecard where we score entrepreneurs around a lot of different traits, everything from working ridiculously fast to can they you know tell an amazing story to the can they are they world-class recruiters and we noticed that the ones that drive non-normal outcomes were not eights across the board they tend to have overwhelming superpowers in certain areas and be amazing at certain things and the irony is people with very great superpowers tend to cast fairly large shadows as well and so one of the other traits is one being really aligned that your superpowers, the right superpowers for this type of business, and two, being self-aware enough about those fatal flaws or those shadows that you can hire great people around you to kind of augment those holes. Um, and, and then I'd say, you know, across the board, one that is almost common to every single great outcome we've had is 
at the end of the day, we do believe building great consumer businesses is about hiring and recruiting the very, very best people. So probably the earliest signal of a team that we think is going to be able to get, you know, all the way to, you know, an everyday household brand name is, is one that can continuously punch way above their weight class and bring people onto the platform, whether it's advisors or board members or, you know, C-level execs or employees. And you just keep turning your head and, and say, wow, how did that person hire that person at this stage of the business? What's what's some advice that you might have for founders that, that are outside the main, you know, venture capital markets that are in secondary or tertiary markets that are building uh, B2C businesses? There's there's always this different camps about entrepreneurial hubs or do you need to be in the Bay Area? And it's it's fairly controversial. I will tell you that of the last five core investments we made none of them were in the Bay Area. And, and that's fairly remarkable for us because mo- our, the majority of our investments to date have been in the Bay Area. It seems like it's an interesting time in that on one hand, the world is getting flatter and it's easier than ever to network you know, kind of at world scale, regardless of where you are. And it's easier to travel and jump on planes and, and more people are moving to the big cities. At the same time, you know, the best entrepreneurs generally are world-class networkers or at least have people on their team that can do that. And so if we look at the companies we funded that are not in at least some kind of secondary market where there's a great ecosystem, they tend to be people with superpowers in networking, second-time entrepreneurs, and or people that are willing to you know jump on planes and still do a lot of face-to-face meetings and build out that network. So in a lot of ways, I think the cost of living is is driving people to start companies outside of the main areas, but there's so much talent, there's so much expertise and so much ecosystem around, you know, the the big VC and entrepreneurial markets that you have to have strong connectivity into those markets. And so if you can do that at a lower cost structure outside of there and do the work, or you already have those networks, I think that's great. If you don't, you got to, you know, either consider moving to one of the markets or, you know, finding a way to build that network. I think that it's an interesting debate about the importance of ecosystems and startup hubs. I, I remember going to a, a an event where venture capitalists, uh, they asked, why are you based in LA? Because uh, LA is still very much a growing uh, venture capital uh, market. And he said, oh, I could be based anywhere. It doesn't matter where I'm based because I'm able to communicate by assuming other methods of communication and invest in everywhere. But I... I agree that 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 communication and, and that of course the world is becoming uh, flatter. Uh, however, I still think that there is some importance when it comes to where you're based and the actual ecosystem that's around you. You know, I, I mentioned that the last five, none of them were in SF. I think three or four of the last five were in some form of startup community, whether that's New York, LA, or even Toronto. There are kind of up and coming startup communities. There was only one in Idaho that really you don't think of at all as plugged in. And that's an entrepreneur that is a serial entrepreneur that had quite successful exit in the same category. And, you know, frankly, I see her face-to-face, you know, connecting with people where she needs to connect with people. So what are some consumer trends and opportunities that, that you personally are excited about? You know, personally, I've been spending a lot of time in the last couple of years really looking closely at the reinvention of entertainment. I think there's kind of two forces driving that. One, there's been so much technology innovation on the tech side in terms of what's possible, whether that's immersive experiences like VR and AR, whether it's the explosion of community into gaming from esports to Fortnite, the games, 
Um, but I think on the other side, watching Gen Z and how they consume content and consume media is very different than, you know, some of the older generations, you know, just watch a 12 year old on TikTok and getting lost in, you know, for four hours on, in the, in the TikTok um, world. And you'll see that there's a level of engagement and a way of consuming media on, on such a fast frequency and kind of a lean back experience that you're involved in. It's really different. And I think when these come together, you know, we're looking at a lot of things in what what does that mean for the entertainment industry on a go forward basis? You know, one of one of my favorite things are when people from the technology industry overlap with the storytellers of the entertainment industry and, and what's possible. And we've seen this again and again in other industries as technology advances forward there's kind of a second wave of application developers and artists and creatives that come behind that and use all these amazing new tools in transforming industry. And I, I, I see the tip of the iceberg of that happening on entertainment, both from the consumption side, as well as what can be built. Um, you know, I think that the rise of gaming to the masses, the unbundling of Facebook and discord and people communicating and the beginning of esports taking over real sports is just the beginning. Absolutely. It's incredible to see the innovation that's happening in entertainment. What is something that you would change when it came to venture capital? Growing up, I think venture capital has always been a very opaque business. You know, I think that there's not a lot of information going back to the entrepreneurs about how VC even works. The good news is I think there's been a lot of progress. I think it's more transparent than it used to be, but I think there's even more progress that that, that can happen. You're starting to see little pieces like in the Y Combinator community, People are sort of sharing a Glassdoor-esque set of reviews around that experience. I see more entrepreneurs than ever before with some understanding of how the VC world works. 10, 20 years ago, people didn't even understand the sources of the capital. The fact that VCs are raising money from LPs, these limited partners, and they're kind of committing to a certain mandate of how they're going to invest that money. You know, I, it was very interesting. We, we recently did an got into a very competitive deal and the entrepreneur as part of their diligence asked us who our LPs were and who we are ultimately making money for. And that's just one example of how it's getting more transparent. But even so, you know, I think that I was at a VC, I was at an entrepreneurial conference the other day and we had a breakout session about fundraising and it was still surprising how little a lot of the entrepreneurs understood about the VC world. And even more so when they were talking about how their fundraising process, how, all the VCs in the room sort of knew not only how the process works, but they kind of knew each other and they, they knew kind of the back channel, what was happening and, and, and what's going on in the deal flow. And, and a lot of the, the entrepreneurs, especially the first time ones were sort of left in the dark. So I think, you know, the one thing I would change is I would love if the VC world became a lot more transparent. And, and I think that there's also this time lag from, the way you act today in venture and when, how long it takes for that to play out. And I think sometimes that drives weird incentives when you combine that with it being a fairly opaque business. Since entrepreneurs are, are asking you, um, or at least in that situation, asked you about who your LPs are, do you think that entrepreneurs are also becoming more mission-driven uh, and impact-driven in terms of who they who their actual in- investors are? You know, I think that the, the world has shifted in that, you know, impact-driven means different things, but I think that it used to be more of an outlier to build a a business that is mission-driven or maybe that's a nonprofit. You know, I think the B Corp's just the beginning, but I think that what's really interesting is that 
as the supply chain is getting compressed, as it's the, the, the barriers to entry of starting a new business are lowering. And frankly, as you know, e-commerce and Amazon and, and omnichannel has driven literally thousands and thousands of millions of SKUs on the long tail, consumers have more choice than ever before. You know, I, I often talk about consumers when I was a kid and you needed a laundry detergent or you needed a, a certain kind of product, there may only be one product that could even deliver the functional spec of what you needed. Now there's literally thousands. You know, you go to, you know, a, a, a big consumer conference and there's walls and walls. You go to Costco or you go online and there's thousands and thousands of products that are virtually identical. And so what's and what's great about that, I think it's an amazing time to be a consumer where people can vote with their dollars, not only finding the one product they can do exactly what they need functionally, but even the brand that represents the authenticity and meaning of what their belief system is as well. And so I think there's the quest for companies that stand for something and, and have strong points of view. And so I think it used to be an outlier and now it's sort of anti into the game. If you're going to build a great consumer brand, you better have a strong point of view on what this stands for. And a great consumer brand having a strong point of view is not just what's in their market materials or, you know, on a Spotify ad, but really how they conduct their business. You know, I, I, we talk about great brands are built from the inside out. Uh, and, and that is everything from how they treat their employees to how they raise their money to how they spend their money to what are they doing for the world? And so, yes, I do think this asking this question around who are we going to make money for when we become the next unicorn is just a part of that puzzle, but it, it's, all the way from what the consumer demands to what these companies stand for. Do you think that a brand that is eco-friendly, whether it's having eco-friendly supply chains or having an impact mission, are able to drive higher margins and consumers are willing to pay more for them because of what the brand stands for? There, there's a couple pieces to unpack there. I think an end consumer doesn't typically start with, I want to pay more because this company is doing good. I don't think they make that attachment, but they may fall in love with the brand based on what that brand stands for. And they certainly are going to tell their friends about the brands that they care about. So hundred percent, I believe that brands that have a strong point of view and have a strong mission and vision have a huge economic advantage, but that's not just in the consumer necessarily saying, I'm going to pay more because this is driving you know, a more sustainable product line. In fact, you know, we have companies that, that have amazing products and do amazing things for the environment with those products. But, you know, it tends to be at the end of the day, a consumer is going to buy based on the product and the brand they believe in, but they're going to talk a lot about what it's doing for the world. And so I think it shows itself in different ways. But I do think having that pricing power because you're building a brand that people can't live without is is really the key. Thank you. Uh, so I noticed that at Maveron, uh, you've been quite public about sharing your core values. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, you know, I mentioned early on that the firm is 21 years old and focused from day one, even from our first investment on on eBay on only direct to consumer investing. The other half of that story is that Dan and Howard started from day one with a very values driven firm, even on the venture side. You know, we talked a lot about values driven companies on the consumer side, but you know, and, and it almost seems non-intuitive that a venture company can be values driven. But we have from, you know, two decades ago and we're seeing more of this movement on the venture side in a few firms. Um, Howard and Dan talked about building a venture consumer 
venture fund that was grounded in humanity and humility. And we've always talked about our mission and our vision, but we especially spent a lot of time in this last um, year trying to codify that and really tightening up the language around it. And we kind of summarized in four core values. You know, the first one we mentioned earlier on is this idea of unapologetically non-normal. And that applies to, as I said, to ourselves internally, as well as the entrepreneurs we like to back. I kind of alluded to this one. The second one is this abbreviated shifts over actions, which means relationships over transactions. And we truly believe that the relationship between a company and their venture partner is a true partnership, not a financial transaction. And, you know, one of the outcomes hopefully is, is building great financial outcomes, but it starts with a great partnership. The third one seems pretty obvious based on what we talked about is this idea of profits plus purpose. And it's not one or the other. We're not a double bottom line firm. Um, and we're not a, let's just make money. I think that the intersection of the two, we believe drives the best outcomes and actually the most important outcomes for the world. Um, and that applies from everything to how we pick our LPs to who we invest in. And then the last one is, we, we, it's pretty simple. It's win the right way. And, and I mentioned earlier on that in venture, there, there can be a time lag between short-term decisions and long-term outcomes. And it's especially that coupled with a fairly opaque business, it's, it's easy to start down the slippery slope of winning the wrong way. And that's everything from how you conduct your business to just having a good UI with your entrepreneurs to when you, when you hit some of these tough spots, how do you act? And so we try to hold ourselves to a very high standard of, of always winning the right way. And I would love to see, and I'd love to see more venture firms continue to push and be more values driven and, and, and put these out in the public. I agree. I think it's very important for a venture capital firm to have their own core values. And I appreciate you articulating them for Maveron. And I saw that Maveron uh, turned down, you guys turned down a 70 million in investment um, at a time. It seems like money is just endlessly pouring into venture capital and fund sizes and valuations just seem just continue to increase. So what was the reason behind turning down the 70 million? You know, I think this is where being a 21 year venture firm in our seventh fund really has its benefits. And and not all of us have been around the table through that whole journey, but you know, we have enough people around the table that, you know, we've shared a lot of stories of good times and bad times and 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 not getting fooled by, you know, frankly, we're at the end end last couple innings of an unprecedented bull market. And and so as we share a lot of these stories and experiences, um, there are a couple of key learnings. You know, the first one is let's make sure we don't confuse our ability to raise capital with our ability to effectively deploy capital. And I think that's every bit as relevant for entrepreneurs as well. Raising money is a different skill and a different metric than effectively using that money. And, you know, we're really good at what we do. It's taken a long time to to perfect our craft and we're getting better every day. But you know, just because we can raise a bunch more money and make more money on fees doesn't mean we should take it. I think the second key learning, and Mike Mabel's actually shared this, is this: at the end of the day, I'm all, I'm a big believer that your fund size is your strategy. When you start to look at venture and the construction of a portfolio and how you get replicable great returns on a fund, at the end of the day. It's infinitely different at a $50 million fund, at a $200 million fund, and a billion-dollar fund. And, and there's a reason why very few multi-billion-dollar funds you know, return more than 1x or even return the capital that's put in. It's just much, much more difficult. And I have seen 
a lot of mistakes along the way with funds that have dramatically increased their fund size because they could, because the capital was available, only to realize that the strategy worked really well at the old fund size no longer works well. They're new fund size, and they're doing things that are completely out of their skill set. And then the third one is, you know, in, in, a, in a unique, somewhat unique way, at Mavron, the, the general partnership is the largest investor in the fund. Usually, that's not the case. And so we, in a lot of ways, think differently because we're optimizing for carry interest and carry returns instead of just fees. Um, which makes us think in a lot of ways, every investment we're making, we're making, you know, in a good chunk with our own dollars as well. And so when you put these together, it, it really drives the thinking that let's go with the same strategy, you know, roughly the same size fund, focus on the team and the discipline and just getting better day after day at what we do instead of raising a bunch more money and, and dramatically changing what we do. I appreciate you sharing how you think about fund sizes in today's landscape and the history of Maveron. So what is your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? My most recent investment is an investment in an augmented reality gaming company um, called Illumix. And I'm super excited about it because I'm a big believer, as I mentioned earlier, that technology is going to drive entertainment in a different way than ever before. And I'm a big believer in augmented reality and virtual reality, but I think it's just the beginning. And there hasn't been very many um, experiences in either of these two that have recurrence or feel like something interesting enough to integrate in your daily lives. I think on the augmented reality side, the closest one is probably Minecraft Earth that's coming out. But you know, I would say that even the Niantic games are more about following things on a map than they are about augmented reality. At the same time, I think the technology's gotten so advanced. There's so many amazing things you can do. And this company has an uh, an entrepreneur, Kieran, that is one of the most talented people on the computer vision side, but also probably the most diehard fandom gamer on the gaming side. So her storytelling abilities with these new tools and, and her ability to build games that, you know, are going to really blur the line between imaginary worlds and real life is, is incredible. And so I, I, I they're pre-launched are getting ready to launch a game in, in Q4 that is going to be a, an augmented reality version of five nights at Freddy's, um, which for anyone younger listening to this would probably know this is one of the most popular survival horror franchises, but for anybody it's a baby boomer, probably never heard of it. But I've been playing for hours a day at home and, and the combination of jump scares and this blurred line between the imaginary world and and, and the real world looking through the phone is, is an amazing thing. That's very cool. I'll certainly keep an eye out for that release. What's, what's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't, and in retrospect, wish you did? You know, I, in BC, we talk a lot about anti-portfolios. I mean, they almost turn into a badge of honor that these are companies that we could have, should have, would have invested in. And in hindsight, we, we didn't for some reason. You know, one that are fairly early on, but it's stuck. And it's especially because we looked at it again and again, and the whole team, we just couldn't quite get there, was Stitch Fix. And I think that, that we knew from day one that Katrina was special. You know, we talked about unapologetically non-normal founders and people that are recruiting a team or people around them that are so much more experienced and talented than you would expect at that stage. You know, Katrina was that in spades. You know, everyone around her team was like 
wow, you got Mike Smith to join you at that stage. You got this team around you. How did you do that? You know, we even had a dinner and we had her join and we brought in, you know, a world-class set of people from Lululemon. And, and, a, and a few months later, she joined Stitch Fix. And we're like, you know, how did that happen? How did you get Margo to join your team at that point in time? At the same time, as we started to do early diligence on the product, you know, we just didn't, we couldn't quite get underneath the use case of, you know, who wanted this product and, and who was buying clothing this way. It turned out that that was a Bay Area bias. That was people that had unlimited ability, even at different price points to, to shop and access to the malls and didn't realize that, you know, there's a lot of red states and there's a lot of the center of the country that still is, you know, six, seven hours away from a shopping mall and, and didn't have time to do that. And, and, and we missed how big the market opportunity was. Yeah, it's pretty amazing what Stitch Fix has become. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders of consumer companies? I was talking a few months ago with one of my mentors on the marketing side, um, a, a woman named Jelle Bisharat, and she's actually starting a company that we've invested in called Naked Poppy in the clean beauty side. And she mentioned that unlike what most people traditionally think, that when you think about how to define product market fit, it's not net promoter score. And it's not this, would you recommend it to a friend? Now, net promoter score is a great metric later on in a business that kind of has a lot of correlations for how well your business will do in terms of how it will grow. But it's not actually a great metric of early product market fit. And, and what she taught me was that product market fit isn't defined by, would you tell a friend about this company or this product? Early product market fit is really defined by how upset would you be if this company product or service went away, which is much more of a proxy for how much are you integrating this product service or company into your everyday life. And a great example I use on the VR side is there are some amazing experiences out there like the void. Uh, and, and anybody who hasn't tried the Star Wars void experience, it really kind of gives a taste of this location-based experience of what VR could become. Um, it's sort of an 11 out of 10 on a net promoter score, which is I think you, you will talk to anybody walking out of the void and ask them, would you recommend this to a friend? They're all going to say, of course. It was an amazing experience. But then you ask them, how upset would you be if this company or this, this experience went away? And you're going to get a lot of, you know, from the scale of not very upset to kind of upset to incredibly upset. You're going to get a lot of not very upset because it's a ride. It's something you may go on once in a lifetime or once a year, but it's not something that is important to your everyday life. Um, and so that's sort of an example of the disconnect. So what I would, my, my piece of advice was early on, really focus on this concept of can you build a company brand service that people are going to integrate so deeply into their everyday lives that they can't even imagine a world without this company. And, and I think if you worry more about that, instead of spending all your time worrying about paid marketing or how you're going to arbitrage your cat to LTV on Facebook and Google, you'll get to that, those innings later on. But if you build the brand and a set of products and services that people truly, truly love and can't even imagine it going away and it would be devastating, you're going to do just great. Yeah. Wow. I think that's excellent advice and very well said in how entrepreneurs should be thinking about their own solutions to problems. Since you brought up Google and Facebook, how do you think about online customer acquisition costs in this current climate since it's becoming increasingly more competitive? You know, I think when, when it comes to consumer tech and, and consumer products, you know, at some point, 
you're always going to have at least strategically use these great marketing channels, the great online paid marketing channels. But in a lot of ways, if you can, you know, I've heard from virtually all our companies that this Google Facebook tax, uh, we call it a lot, as, as these platforms are maturing, is getting increasingly more expensive. So the less addicted and reliant you are on those platforms to drive your growth. I heard a stat, I think 40% of VC dollars is actually going straight through companies directly to Google and Facebook. And I think that, that, that that's a tough treadmill to be on, especially early. And so the best companies are going to grow even without that and are using that as one of the strategic levers to grow faster. Uh, I've even heard a few later stage VC says, say that when they do their diligence around a consumer company, they often build a model and imagine what happens if we turn off all paid marketing. Is it still growing? Is it growing month over month by single digits? Is it shrinking? And start there. And then you can add back the paid marketing and see you know, how that lever impacts it. So I, I'd be very cautious of the concentration risk on, on paid marketing. Of course, you want to do if you're doing it, and when you're doing it, and most people are going to start using paid marketing as one of the the weapons in in, in their strategy. You want to be very conscious of kind of this CAC to LTV, and and you know how much money a, comp- a customer is going to make in their life cycle. How much does it cost to get that customer? And then the other thing is, I definitely do it on a incremental basis and not a blended basis. And so you want to know by channel what's that look like and what's that ratio? And you want to look at what is the last com- customer you hired? Because I'm, I mean, almost for sure, the last customer you acquired is going to cost more than the first customer you acquired. So really having good um, instrumentation and understanding of kind of incremental cost of customers and cost of customers by channel is super important. But we also do look at tactile DV ratios. You know, a common rule of thumb is you on a contribution basis, you'd like to have your... Cactel DV be, you know, roughly a 3X. And, and, and you know, it, every situation is slightly different, but that kind of gives a sense of, of what that can look like. Wow. 40% of all VC dollars going straight to Google and Facebook. That's wild. So, David, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. That was great. And there you have it, folks. It was wonderful having David on, and I really appreciate him taking the time and giving us a glimpse on how he approaches early-stage consumer investing. If you'd like to keep up to date with David, you can follow him on Twitter at Dave Wu. That will also be in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, which if you're still listening, I hope you have, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast app. You are also welcome to check out our website, theconsumervc.com for all episodes. And if you want to follow along behind the scenes, feel free to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC. I will now be releasing two episodes each week on Mondays and Thursdays. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, folks.